If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Because four hours simply isn't enough. This is Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. Do we have a name for this thing? Book review, stop using the word club. Book review, damn it. It's not a club. We're not middle-aged ladies with our pinkies in the air. That's the perfect start right there. All right. That's what we're talking about. This here book that we read. So are we doing this? We are. We're We're doing it. We're on right now. Apocalypse now. Um, Somebody should have let me know. So we uh, we read a book. Who's we? Um, Armstrong and Getty, Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty, and then two other people. Craig Gottwalls, the healthcare guru, public intellectual, fan favorite, and Tim Sandifer, vice president for litigation for the Goldwater Foundation, and uh, famous as Tim the lawyer. Um, Tim, how are you, Howdy. sir? I'm great. Craig is here as well. That's what I want to be when I grow up as a public intellectual. I know it's holding me back, though. <laughs> I'm pretty certain of it. Oh, and it ain't boy. my you all, height. You need to cultivate your accent, too. That would you, help. Need, you need some, some sort of vaguely European but hard to pin down sound. Like Borat. So we set out to read a book, have and a plan to discuss it, then the book is? Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment Now, suggested by Tim, subtitled The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. It's a very large book, oppressive, I, I would say. Um, and, and my question is... Lots of pictures, though. At, you know what? Yes, on the plus <laughs> side. Lo- big fan of the pictures. Uh, my question is, do we want to go in-depth on the big ideas, or do we want to go shallow on the many different ideas, or both or neither? I will vote for the latter, and here's why. I, As you will remember, when I recommended this book, I specifically said that you could cut off the last 200 pages and not read those. How about the first 175? The, <laughs> <laughs> those are where the pictures are. And what, the reason why I suggested the book is because I love the this this depth of detail he gets into about how much better life is today than it has ever been in the history of the world. 
And, you know, it's so easy to get feeling depressed and down and pessimistic about the future. And page after page of this book makes clear why we have it better than any human beings ever have had it in almost any dimension you care to mention. And that's why I loved this book so much and enjoyed going through that beginning part. I agree with all this stuff in the end when he gets into the more philosophical details, but I didn't even think that was really necessary. Just, just Nothing lifts your spirits more than some of these statistics in here about how good life is today. Yeah, um, I believe when we were first when this book first came out, we were texting or emailing about it, and it's just it, it's it is easy to get caught up in the day to day. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. This book points out the progress that has made been made by human beings, particularly uh, with the help of the Enlightenment, and some of the statistics about this is one we talk about uh, regularly on the Armstrong and Getty Show is the for most of human history, you are going to have one or more of your kids die. That was just part of life. That's just the way it worked. Now it is a rare occurrence and, and seen as just a tragedy beyond tragedies to have to endure. Um, I mean, that's a major change. Life expectancy and the ability to get out of childhood and everything like that. That alone is just incredible. And, and you know, we often when we think about the olden days with, with uh, the high child mortality rate, People sometimes think, oh, well, they were inured to it. They were so accustomed to that that they weren't as affected as we, we are today by the loss of a child. And we know that that is not true, in part if you look at graveyards. If you look at old graveyards, especially around the Victorian age, when people started to be able to afford tombstones, they built these elaborate, heart-wrenching, beautifully carved headstones for their kids because they were just as affected as we are today. So it's not like they were calloused or anything. The loss of a child 100 or 200 years ago was a, as, just as heart-wrenching as it is to us today, and we are very fortunate that we so rarely experience something like that. Yeah, if you've ever read any of the Lincoln stuff. You I know was that. just going to yeah. bring him up, yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> crippling grief, both he and, and his wife, who admittedly was already a little crazy. But, hey, before we get into more specifics, the two general things that I found most interesting about the book were uh, Pinker's discussion of the natural... Uh, human tendency, the psychological, anthropological tendency to see problems more vividly than good stuff. And and it, it's I thought it was interesting, particularly as observers of the modern world and news and the rest of it, to say, you know what? You're right. Focusing on the crappy is a very difficult thing to resist. And we can talk about that. But the other thing, and this is the point of the book, is the very idea that you have to, in the Western world, defend the Enlightenment, defend science, defend logic, defend pushing aside superstition um, in the face of some of the modern uh, forces, particularly on university campuses. I mean, it's, it's shocking that you even have to do it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I um, personally, I think that it's this. That it's really frightening the hostility toward what they call the bourgeois virtues or bourgeois life, and it's this this romanticism toward the idea that that life should be more meaningful or more profound than enjoying a barbecue with your with your family. Uh, we, in fact, we just had we, so we just went through Veterans Day, right? And every year, there's somebody out there who says something sarcastic or or dark about how you know people should be. They, they're out there just shopping, uh, getting at, at the sales at the mall, or they're just hanging out and having barbecues instead of thinking about what this day really means and all that. 
which has always really driven me crazy because especially Veterans Day, what these men fought and died for was for our ability to just enjoy a nice holiday with our family. That's exactly what they wanted when they went off to war. And we do them an honor by just celebrating with our families. And I think the hostility to the Enlightenment is largely rooted in this idea that there's something you know, lax or unimportant or insignificant or vulgar about the life of comfort and happiness with with that we enjoy today with our technological advancement. That's a real problem that's that generates this sort of attitude that, well, we should be out there crusading for national greatness or something like that instead of instead of living lives of peace and happiness. On Joe's comment you at the beginning or prior to Tim's there about the, the two over, overarching themes, I think on Joe's first theme um, our, our psychological need for the negative. That's the old, I just think of that as the, as the old, if it bleeds, it leads, right? I mean, if it's shocking and negative, it's, it's something people want to talk about. Um, the latter point that Tim was just expounding on, the fact that we have to defend the Enlightenment is, to me, that just dovetails so nicely into what postmodernism is and this attack on facts in general and that there are no facts and that there is no right answer and that everything is is so dour and negative and, and, and saturated in horror, basically. Right. And then that, that's a common assault we see now across our whole university system in, in all of the developed nations. Well, I know Tim absolutely has spent his life researching this sort of thing, and Jack's been talking on the Armstrong and Getty Show lately about um, the whole uh, critical race theory and, and the intersectional horror that I like to bring up. Somebody, anybody, why yeah. would... Any organized group of thinkers or political radicals or whatever, why would they want to undermine the idea that there is objective truth? What's the goal? I have an answer to that. I think this is what I think happened. And this actually kind of relates to the book that I just published, The Life of Jacob Bronowski, because he was part of this post-World War II generation. You guys that, catch that humble brag? Yeah, so you can buy that on Amazon.com. <laughs> Uh, there was this post-World War II generation that, that sought to prevent anything like that from ever happening again. And they thought the answer was to find a universal human morality and a universal philosophy that would apply across cultures that was focused on material progress. And that's just the Enlightenment all over again. But there were other people who took a different view, and they thought that what had led to World War II or to other wars was cultural conflict and that the solution to that was cultural relativism. If we don't pass judgments on other cultures, then we're not going to go to war with other cultures. And so if we just learn to get along and not criticize each other, then that's fine. Then we'll all be happy, except the problem with that is that there are things you ought to criticize people and cultures for. And the, that, that metastasized into a war on objective truth because people started thinking, well, objective truth means you're going to tell me how to, to run my life. And that, so therefore, objective truth leads to totalitarianism, which is crazy. But I think that's a large part of it. Tim, Tim ascribes, uh, I think, honestly, the most optimistic view of critical race theory that I've heard. I think that's, I think that's the most optimistic defense. I was going to say that's remarkably generous. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, Jack or Joe, any, either of you guys want to tell I mean, Jack and I've spent a lot of time watching these YouTube videos that, that, are, that are hours long and nobody should probably ever really spend time doing, but uh, you want to take a stab at that, Jack? Well, I just think that would be a, to a whole own topic I would end up spending an hour on. Uh, critical race theory. Um, on 
But what's behind it? Why? What's the why? The why? The why? I don't know. The the why is that if there is no universal truth, including reason and science and the other stuff of the Enlightenment, which we can get into in a while, is those with power can determine what's the truth. And the only truth is what they say is the truth. And that's that's the mark of Maoist regimes and, and similar stuff all over the world. Any questioning of the great leader's doctrine means instant death. And it's especially easy to enforce that if there's nothing to appeal to. If I'm constantly trying to make the other feel bad right. and they accept it, yeah, I have a lot, a, a lot easier time ruling, leading, doing what I want to do, making my personal desires manifest. This book that we read, Enlightenment Now, it goes through a number of different ways in which humankind is better now than it was, uh, you know, uh, throughout the history of, of mankind. And we mentioned... Uh, uh, life expectancy and infant mortality and that sort of thing. But wealth is absolutely amazing. It wasn't that many years ago that practically everybody on the planet lived in poverty fairly recently. And now very few people live in what the worldwide standard for pro- poverty is. And, um, you know, that can't be glossed over at all. I mean, what a no. change that is. That so first, few. So few, in fact, that they spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to measure poverty. Because right. it's right. so hard to measure. Yeah, yeah. well, that's why in the United States we had to come up with this whole, uh, what do they call it, um, uh, uh, instead of hunger. Food insecurity. Food insecurity, <laughs> because you have to go with some sort of, you might experience insecurity of food in the next year. Because you can't measure hunger because there's not enough of it. But for the for the vast history of humankind, the only thing you did every single day was, where am I going to find something to eat? The fact that you don't have to worry about that anymore is such an amazing change. Yeah, that obesity is a, major, a, a larger health problem in the United States than starvation. Surely we're the first civilization ever to have that problem. On, on wealth and food, I do want to share. This, is, this touches upon two specific statistics in the book that were two of my favorites. Um, on food, between 1961 and 2009... Um, we use 12% more land now, but we produce 300% more food That's pretty on the amazing. globe. And then on wealth, if we um, look back at, uh, by 2008, all persons on the planet had an average income equal to that of Western Europe in 1964. That 64. 1964. You know, one of the things I love about this book is how he shows he shows these statistics in very unusual ways that you would never think of asking to begin with. So I love how he shows, for instance, that we're not just richer than our great grandparents were, but the poorest people today are richer than the richest people were only 50 years ago. Yeah, that, our parents it, that were. Sort of thing. It's <laughs> when incredible. our parents were kids, yes. Well, and one of the most powerful <clears throat> points I think he, may, think he makes, and I wish I had the graph in front of me right now, um, maybe I'll flip to it at some point, is that the, the average income or the, you know, the, the way people live all over the world has increased enormously from widespread infant mortality, disease, misery, all of it, it's increased to this really pretty damn good state, even as we've added in the last, is it 30 years, 5 billion people to the globe. So we've accomplished the growth and standards of living while growing the population. And and, and living that way, we, we went from roughly 50 years ago spending 60 hours a week on housework to today we spend on average, the average household spends 15 hours a week on housework. Right. Or or even just technology. Even even just light. Just light. One of my favorite statistics in the the book is the cost of light over time where it's, it's so small today to, to measure the cost of lighting a room for an hour 
that you really can't accurately measure it. It's so cheap as compared to how much it costs for a candle 100 years ago or something like that. Now, it's, Tim, it's amazing. Tim, you're in Arizona where light is still cheap. Things are Plentiful. changing dramatically in California. Yeah, on we're resorting to whale oil. <laughs> as I run gasoline <laughs> and generators in my backyard to make sure I can work at night. I hate the sea and everything in it. <laughs> so, uh, listen, before we get into more uh, specific measures like light and, and whatever, the the whole idea of the Enlightenment reason and, and science and, uh, and humanism, which is, uh, can we say natural rights for now? Sure. That, yeah. that idea, um, that's what, and, and the idea that we can make progress is the, the keys to understanding the Enlightenment and what it was. And just life expectancy, this is perhaps my favorite uh, graph in the book. And, and he mentions that you could go way, way, way back to ancient times, your Stone Age, your Bronze Age, whatever, and life expectancy was the same, the same, the same, the same, the same. It was flat for thousands and thousands of years. And then starting in 1760, it's still flat. I mean, it raises a little bit in the Americas and Europe, just a little bit. But when the age of science and reason really took hold in the mid-1800s and then the late 1800s, it explodes all over the world, science, reason, objective truth, it raised the uh, the world life expectancy from about 29 years old to 70 in the space of 135, 150 years. And all those graphs are as stark as that one. The wealth, the life expectancy, the education, they're all as as straight up at some point. And it's no mistake, yeah. it's no accident that capitalism comes around around the same time, right? Wealth of Thank Nations you. was published in 1776. And I think a lot of the reason for the hostility toward science, humanism, progress, and objective truth, I think a lot of that is basically rooted in a hostility to capitalism. Because we're talking about these great statistics, and I keep thinking about... I, you know, as you mentioned, I live in Arizona. About a quarter of the state of Arizona is Indian reservations. And if you go to these reservations, the statistics there are almost the reverse of what we've been talking about. The average annual income on the Navajo reservation, which is about the size of New England, it's two and a half si- times the size of Massachusetts. The average annual income on Navajo is about $7,500 per year. Wow. And the average aver- annual income on Apache uh, south of there uh, is is about four thousand dollars a year. Something like ninety or ninety nine percent of the populations on these reservations are employed by, in some way or another, the tribal government. And the statistics on the uh, of of um, reservation poverty are abominable. Like we're talking like a quarter of the residences don't have running water or electricity or telephone service. And and there are people who are living on these uh, in these places who are just normal people like you and me who are living a life that we cannot possibly imagine. And that really is a demonstration of how this escape from poverty, the great escape you were describing, is the consequence of social and cultural variables, which we've said are objectivity, reason, science, free markets, and exchange. And a lot of people are object to those because they say, well, those those would be dangerous to our culture. That would undermine the survival of our cultural traditions. And whatever you might think of that, it's just not true. If you look at uh, groups like the Italian-Americans, Italian-Americans have been able to keep their culture thriving and alive in the United States with hardly any serious threat of diminishment. Why? Because they've participated in the, the, the capitalist process that America makes possible. The same with just about any other ethnic group you choose to name. But insular groups that wall out those those 
traditions of, of free markets and individualism and exchange and capitalism, they suffer terribly and then point fingers often at other people as if it's their fault. Well, this is a dangerous conversation to jump into and will probably end my career, which is fine. Um, uh, but there are aspects of some culture, uh, cultures that are simply what we used to do. Or what we yeah, have right. done. I mean, part of my sacred culture is that I smoked too much pot. I mean, now, is that a cultural norm that I should hang on to just because in college for a while I smoked too much pot? Or is that just one of the things I did for a while? And, and how it, horrible to have a situation that encourages bad habits like that to become thought of as part of your culture. And that's what romanticism does, I think. There's, romanticism is the opposite of the Enlightenment. It's this idea that there's some super emotional force, some forces of history or supernaturalism or something that collects us together as cultures and is this important bond and is so beautiful and more important than human needs and human life and everything. And it's, you know, all that, all that stuff you see in Disney movies that people really just do have in their brains. And as a result of that romanticism, they think of bad ideas as in, as just part of who they are a lot of the time. And that's really, it's, it's a travesty to them and it's a travesty to their culture and it holds them back terribly. Well, and it's at the basis of sending wave after wave after wave of soldiers to their deaths in the name of some imaginary national pride or something like that. Yeah. So, and there are, you know, all sorts of examples through history, you know, the, the slaughtering, torturing people over, you know, variations in Christianity through well, the Middle Ages. Well, look at the Confederacy. Whatever. The Confederacy is a great example, right? The Southern Confederacy was built on this vision of national, Southern nationalism that said oppressing black people is just part of our culture. The Southern way of life consisted of doing these horrible things. That's what that was. What the pre-Civil War Southern intellectual leaders tried to say. That's a pretty and good example because look how it held things back. Instead of letting go of the the bad part or dumb part or unproductive part or illegal part of your culture and hanging on to you know you can keep NASCAR and sweet tea. You just can't. Yes, have, please. You just can't have slavery. No. Change, <laughs> change is very very hard for many people. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, there was a follow-up on that. Ah, it'll pop into my head eventually. As we're thinking about the book globally, one more kind of global question. I mean, it, 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 we're not going to recount every graph for the podcast here, but basically oh, the book, the book that's shows what I came that for. <laughs> every single aspect of tangible, measurable life, with very few exceptions, is getting better. We're getting we're getting healthier. We live longer. We have more food. We we have a better environment. We have all these things, right? And but is there anything in the book that uh, statistically, just factually, you guys think, boy, I don't know if that's true. Is there is there do we want to just sort of accept everything in here is accurate or do we want to say, boy, there's that that may not be accurate to me. Well, Pinker wrote the book in part because he was kind of criticized for his previous book where he had said that there was a reduction in international violence and war. Right. And he which he, one of the fascinating aspects of this book is that he attributes that he he argues that we <clears throat> actually have essentially outlawed <clears throat> war, which is a really interesting and intriguing suggestion. But he was criticized for saying that the world is more peaceful today than it was in the past. And he quantitatively shows some of that with his charts on war and his charts on genocide, yeah. et cetera. I'm just saying, is there anything in the book that any of you guys saw or thought, I'm just not sure that's accurate? I mean, do, in other words, do we want to accept his facts as given as we proceed? Through? He, I, I, um, I have seen him speak a couple of times on this because he, he made the rounds to a bunch of different uh, universities and Google. shows and everything like that. And uh, 
And that's where I first became aware of this book on book TV. But because we've had a rise in suicides, he 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 says, no, that's not true. I don't know where his statistics are different than the statistics that uh, that that are coming to us through, you know, major newspapers. Well, and this was going to be one of my major gripes with the book. When he gets into the recent rise of social media and, and suicides and stuff like that, I think he does an absolutely fabulous job of tracking uh, historical data in all the things we've been talking about from infant mortality to uh, calories per worker to hours spent working to just all of the outcomes that make human life either livable or miserable does an absolutely fabulous job on that. I think there are times and this is one of them when historical statistics are not terribly useful when you have enormous change happening mm-hmm. at blinding speed yeah particularly in terms of social media and and adolescence and as a as a dad and i don't want to you know claim you know special expertise over anybody else uh, chatting here but as not only a dad but a coach and a volunteer and the rest of it uh, i've seen shocking changes in the emotional health of our young people and and i think it might be the classic hockey stick graph where there, there. Every statistic he he tracks, he points out that there are wobbles up and down through history. There's a war here and a famine there, and but the overall trend is X, and mm. I think that is absolutely legitimate, unless we're dealing with a sudden and and huge change in the way human beings relate to each other, and 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 social sickness being on the rise. Now, one of the other points he made is is. As long as you hang with the Enlightenment, you will recognize these problems and find ways to cure them because every development has downsides. And I found that kind of reassuring. But I think he dismissed the whole suicide, misery, lack of connection thing too easily. He did. I, I, that's ex- one of the things I was thinking about in asking this question, because as we look at the graphs, he and I, I watched him give a talk as well on this where he said globally suicides are down. And he, this is a talk he just gave in the last handful of months. He said, globally, suicides are down, but that's not true for the United States. And if you look at his graph in the book, the, the, the United States graph is drop, 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 ting, it just pops up at the very end, suicides up. But what I found so interesting was he said he's looked at that and he said, look, yeah, teenage girls go through a, a, a period where suicides are more likely, but that's normal and that's always been normal. He said this uptick is not teens. He said it's disenfranchised boomers that are retiring. It's the old white boomers that are retiring and committing suicide. That are and he, he backs that. Out that point up, too, with showing that, that baby boomers' drug use has is, yes. is steady as compared to other generations. We tend to, to blend <clears throat> all these generations together instead of saying the people who were using drugs in 1980 are still using drugs today, whereas the kids who were born in 1980 are using drugs at a lower level than their peers were 20 years ago, things like that, which is interesting. Now, here's here's a twist on this. So one of the things that I really kept thinking about reading the book is how much of the downside is attributable to the upside. So, you know, people often say, well, capitalism causes misery. And there is a truth to that. And that is that uh, two or three hundred years ago, if there was a crop blight that wiped out your potato crop, you were just going to die. And that was it. And you would then no longer... You would then no longer be unhappy. True. Whereas in today's world, if you have a crop blight, you'll be fine and you'll survive 20 more years. And that's 20 more years in which to be unhappy. And to so be measured old- as by a pollster as miserable. 
Exactly. You so the overall amount when you were dead, the overall amount of <laughs> unhappiness does increase precisely because capitalism makes us happier. And then this brings to mind the conclusion of his book when he's talking about anti-enlightenment thinking, and he particularly blames Friedrich Nietzsche for this. And Nietzsche wrote this little passage in one of his books where he says, "Well, imagine." What the, the the end process of worldwide capitalism, and he imagined what he called the last man. The last man is a couch potato who is so wealthy and so happy that he does nothing with his life. He just sits there and he's just happy, and that's Go all he on. does, right? And and he thinks this is a horrible idea. This is so horrible. He thinks that that this will be the destruction of everything we know to be human. And this is goes back to what I was saying earlier about people who think that there's something wrong with being happy. But they want a more romantic, bold, visionary kind of some kind of a uh, uber humanity or whatever. And maybe the reason for the rise in, in suicides is that, first of all, it's easier now because we have more access to the tools necessary to kill ourselves. And horrifyingly, what if the end result is we have so much wealth and we solve so many problems that there's nothing left to do but turn ourselves off? I think that's very possible. I think that's very possible. You, you earlier when we started this podcast, book, and when you were right? talking about uh, like there's something wrong with people just uh, you know sitting around enjoying their lives, <laughs> um, the super motivated people like yourself, Tim, or people who are gonna you know write a book or study something new, they'll probably survive. But I think the average human. It's just gonna sit in front of a TV and get fatter until their heart explodes. Yep. It's Huxley, with, with, right? It's with, one of it's one of Getty's favorite books, Huxley. Well, yeah, yeah. Brave uh, New World. Yeah, I just and that was my other gripe with the whole hockey stick of the modern world thing. The the rapidity of change in the last couple of decades is that um, we have never not had a purpose. Um, as human beings, I mean, an anim, a real purpose and not, you know, delivering lectures uh, to, to people about the Constitution or entertaining them on a radio show. I'm talking about not being dead. And yeah. if, if you remove virtually all purpose from people's lives and I think Pinker is way too dismissive of the change from person uh, in person contact to online contact, those two things will deny the common people the purpose that animates them. Possibly. Although, you know, we, we in this, Craig, you earlier said that, that Pinker goes through all the material measures of wealth. Remember, he does have a whole chapter on happiness and measuring yes, yes. How, how people report, self-report greater degrees of happiness. Great with, chapter. Again, yeah. yep. there is a little downtick in America in recent years. But even that is seems to be confined to the white population. He shows that black population reports of self-reports of happiness are still on the rise. So it seems to be more of a social anxiety, which I would blame the media for largely, which keeps telling us I blame us the that, media blamers. Yeah. <laughs> and I blame the media blame blamers. <laughs> but I, you know, we, we, we shouldn't over-exaggerate the degree of unhappiness. I think there is a, there is a, a minor tick, and we should keep an eye on that and make sure that, that it's not continuing in that trend. But you it's could not be like, right. Or he wrote the book exactly before it all went to hell. <laughs> No, right. he didn't. That's it what, happens. That's what I thought, Jack. I mean, he didn't, though, because, I, you know, his, his talks and his the stuff he's been saying about the book has all been in the last year. And that's why I think Joe's point is so valid. Um, the hockey stick may not be relevant or you may not be capturing the hockey stick when you when you look at suicides amongst teen girls that have occurred just in the last seven to ten years and how that's just skyrocketing by other standards and other data sources we've looked at. But. 
according to Pinker, that's not the issue. The issue is old white men, which I just found really interesting. Oh, yeah. As, as far well, as number of suicides up. As far as number of suicides uh, yeah, up. Yeah, I, I get that. I, yeah. I get his reasoning and everything. But I'm telling you, when you rearrange something as fundamental as human, human contact, contact. I couldn't agree more, Joe. I could not agree you're, more. You're messing with stuff at a very, very basic I, level. I, but, I'm, what I'm saying in a long-winded way is I agree with you. I think this is a weakness in the book. because And I, it's a weakness. You could say some people think it's a weakness in the Enlightenment itself. You know, one of the one of the things when the Enlightenment was first happening in the 18th century, one of the things that its leaders realized that they were lacking was a substitute for church. And that was actually the reason why organizations like the Freemasons were started. They were and supposed why golf to be, clubs were started. They're supposed Come to be on. secular alternatives to church. And the golf still continues to be that, I guess. But, you know, there are there is this weakness that we we humanists don't really have an alternative to churches to to have a place to go every week where you meet your neighbors and friends and so forth. And all online, like you said, Joe, online just does not substitute for that. And that could be a real serious problem, I think, for the Enlightenment for most people. Not for me, because I'm a misanthrope and I'm perfectly happy sitting in my office with my books and my cat all day. But there are lots of people out there who really want a place to go every week. Guys, we got a hit. I, we're, so far, we have not hit what I think is my favorite and the best part of the book. And it's a principle that we have not heard in the media we have, I don't think any of us have done a good job expressing this principle, so I want to hit it really quick and get each of your thoughts on it. Page 101 in the hardback edition, okay? A study of 2,000 people in 68 countries done by Kelly and Evans. I'm just going to read this quote because I think it's so powerful. The theory that inequality causes unhappiness comes to shipwreck on the rocks of facts. In developing countries, inequality is not dispiriting, but heartening. People in more unequal societies are happier the authors suggest that whatever envy status anxiety or relative deprivation people may feel in poor unequal countries is swamped by hope inequality is seen as the harbinger of opportunity why don't we do a better job of expressing that in the face of what we see in modern america i just wonder if it's just if that is only true up to a point once everybody gets above a level of i've got I've got food. I got a big screen TV. I got a car I like. I got the cool clothes I like. I don't have as much stuff as I want. Then they're miserable. I mean, just the country. If you're talking about the poor countries, they're the people at the bottom are still in the. I'm just happy I'm alive and got right. food now. I'm not going to bitch that I don't have as nice think, a house I as I think that we person. can stipulate this is to the developing world. Yeah, not to the developed world, the modern world, not 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 the starving country. Because there, there's okay. an old saying that uh, one of the great things about America is if you're a, a working class person, and you see somebody drive by in a Cadillac. Um, instead of saying, you know, I hate the rich or damn, that person cheated me or whatever you think I'm going to be that someday. Is that still true? I don't know. I sure hope so. If it if it ever ceases to be true, America will have really lost its heart. That that is the heart of America, and it really dis, it really disappoints me to see how many political politically prominent figures, including people running for office today, take the view of we shouldn't have billionaires. I mean, that what is that but pure envy and hatred for those who have achieved more than you? That's just, just so horrifying. Right, and we need to get to the the bedrock defense of of the free markets in a moment or two. But is it possible, in your opinions? Uh, to indoctrinate a society to drop aspiration and adopt envy. You go from wanting to be the guy with the Cadillac to hating the guy with the Cadillac. Do you think, because Pinker, I mean, he really rests a lot of his arguments on that this is how human <laughs> beings are, and you can document it, and it's easily observed, blah, blah, blah. Uh, can cultural norms become sick? 
I think when well, the floor uh, one, gets raised, that's my point. I think when the floor gets raised high enough, I think you do lose that. People just get into envy and... According to this study, you do. I mean, they even go through in this in this lengthy study that Kelly and Evans did. They say, look, this held true across 68 countries. The only place it didn't hold true was in the former Soviet bloc. So if you were born and bred among, you know, amongst believing equality is the final answer for everything, mm-hmm. then it, it didn't hold true. But it held true for everybody else. Historically speaking, historically speaking, civilizations in human history have been organized around envy vastly more often than they've been organized around aspiration. I just you look at every other society in in the history of the race and it's just human beings have been far more likely to go to envy than to say, I'm going to build something great myself. Well, it's amazing we've pulled it off culturally because human nature, at least looking at children, maybe you grow out of it, but looking at kids... My kids can be perfectly happy with something until uh, until they see some somebody with something better. Then all right, of a sudden, yeah. what they have sucks. Well, a fabulous uh, study with the monkeys. Yeah, with the slices of cucumber. Then the one monkey gets a grape. The other monkey goes crazy. I mean, uh, all the Stephen Pinker's graphs in the world can't talk that money out that monkey out of envy. But because monkeys you know don't can, understand it, human it, language. Holly, but Hollywood can. Right. I'm talking about the media blamers. This is one, a role that Hollywood has so long played. You look at the Disney movies of de- decades past and put aside the romanticism I complained earlier about. But a lot of it is teaching the, uh, the generations that, uh, that are coming next. Look, as- aspire, be great, seize your dreams, make something beautiful of the world. That's a, an important role for Hollywood to play. And Disney is one of the few remaining who still even tries to do this. I turn on the television and it's just constantly anti-heroes. And and mobster stories and there's where are the stories about dreaming big and making it great in the world today? It's there's a difference between envy and equality here. In that, what I mean is, if just because I envy somebody having more than me doesn't mean I truly want an equal society. It just means I want to be the guy moving up the ladder. And if if mm. I really ultimately believe there's no way for me to get ahead. And everything is just going to be equal forced equality. I think you end up with the malaise of, of Soviet communism. No question. Well, well, there has to be inequality to have something to aspire to. I just love the idea that inequality augments happiness. And, right. and nobody, no, no politician has the nads to make that argument today as we're hearing but at the about. Same time, but at the same time, we should mention that Pinker has a whole chapter here about equality and how in, in a great many different ways, inequality is on, is, is on the, the reduc- is reducing over time. Right. That Which though, again, it, we're not hearing in the mainstream media. That's right. Well, go ahead, Tim, on that thought. Yeah. How, uh, tell us here's more about a, here's that. Here's a passage that I enjoyed. Progress in equal rights may be seen not just in political milestones and opinion bellwethers, but in data on people's lives. Among African Americans, the poverty rate fell from 55% in 1960 to 27.6% in 2011. Life expectancy rose from 33 in 1900, which was 17 and a half years below that of whites, to 75.6 years in 2015, less than three years below whites. African Americans who make it to 65, have longer lives ahead of them than white Americans of the same age. The rate of illiteracy fell among African Americans from 45% in 1900 to effectively zero today. Good luck with getting elected with that message, Tim. Well, exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. Gosh. Uh, yeah. Um, the, the difficulty, I think, in, with that argument is that, you know, most People, most voters have, you know, barely a grasp on a lot of the stuff. And if you can point to the ultra rich gaming the system, which is undeniably true. 
I mean, they yeah. write the laws, and those laws benefit themselves, and they grow fabulously, fabulously wealthy. And I think people's outrage over that is absolutely legitimate. They always resort to the wrong solution, which is bigger and more powerful government, uh, right. to my chagrin. And it'll it'll actually cause me an early death, ironically, Mr. Pinker. Um, <laughs> so that's it's a difficult argument to make. But I wish we could hammer something as simple as the, the great defense of capitalism, which is that uh, Bernie and his crowd um, are, are obsessed with slicing up the pie or, or Jerry Brown's infamous horrific quote about those who have extracted uh, disproportionately from the public wealth the idea of dividing the pie as opposed to growing the pie and and pinker makes the point that we have uh, just to cite the united states for instance in terms of the wealth and standard of living of the common man we've gone from dividing up a tiny little cupcake to a pie the size of a football field i mean and yeah there are people who have large chunks of it um, but everybody has so much more pie thanks to so the free much market. Pie. And, and I've, just, I've distracted Jack. But <laughs> I think we're all pro pie here. Yes, oh exactly. my God, right now. So much so that he makes the point, which I, I think dovetails quite nicely on that, that if you were to go ahead and add in what we all pay for our health care and our retirement and our benefits as part of our paycheck at work, if you add that in with all of the other social programs available to Americans, you, the United States now has the second largest benefit welfare state on the planet to France. Wow. Did not know that. Page 109 in the book. I couldn't Unfortunately, believe it. we put it all on the credit card. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. We owe it to China, but we have it. Hey, you know, there was growing the pie. There was one thing I wanted. To, I, I forgot. I wanted to get back to uh, that that we mentioned earlier, and that is this thing about community and how how people have this need for community, and that in our progress that has been in some ways neglected. It also should be emphasized that new forms of community have been made possible. Now, whether they're adequate or not is something that we can only fi figure out years from now when we look back in retrospect. But we have not only more avenues for community, but and and but more different ways to access those communities. And it used to be uh, 200 years ago, if I was the only guy around who was interested in, let's say, parrots, you know, there, nobody else in town cares about parrots, knows anything about parrots. They, they might know, oh, Tim, he's that quirky guy who likes parrots. And that's that, right? Nowadays, I can go on Google and I can find the parrot lovers community and I can follow pictures of parrots on Instagram and I can email people on the other side of the world about <laughs> their parrots and and post you know, angrily on a forum about your opinions host a podcast <laughs> with three of my closest friends right. about parrots and so there are new ways of accessing community that can substitute and whether they're as good as the olden days I don't know how you even really go about measuring that but we do have community that previous generations did not have yeah, yeah, um, yeah. A couple of the things that will really be will will all have to be on the watch for over the coming decades and centuries in terms of the enlightening enlightenment continuing to flourish will be, uh, you know, this automation, sense of purpose, communication, all this sort of stuff. Do we have enough interactions with other human beings uh, that are fulfilling? As Tim was just talking about it, do we have any sense of purpose when automation? you know, starts to take a lot of jobs when away. When I'm away from home and I text message my sex robot and ask her how she's doing, <laughs> right. does it, do I feel fulfilled? Does your wife get jealous? Exactly. <laughs> and your robot doesn't answer because it's having sex with a different sex with, robot. With the Should I be jealous? I don't know. I'm going to go to my online encounter group and ask the other uh, robot effers. 
I'm, just, <laughs> I'm a visionary. Uh, there, there are so many different topics in this book, as I mentioned at the very beginning. You could do a whole podcast on all of them. The little stuff on uh, crime and punishment, how that has changed with the Enlightenment over the uh, the over the years, and to where we start to look at crime and punishment, um, um, uh, or incarcerating people or penalizing people as a way to try to get less bad things to happen in society only as opposed to some sort of weird cosmic balancing of the social scales where you feel like you got to just, you know, you got to cut off a hand or they have to be executed or they need to be beaten or whatever. Um, those advances are just amazing with the uh, with the advancement of well science and reason and all that. And, you know, that brings to mind there are several passages of this book that made me feel a little uncomfortable in the sense that they challenged my priors, as they say, because there are some measures of progress that he shows that could at least arguably say that what I think is good for society is not necessarily like you mentioned the welfare state earlier, you know, that maybe the the great progress we've made possible also validates wealth redistribution in ways that I personally disagree with. Mm. Now, now my answer to that, of course, is I actually think that we would end up with everybody better off if we had less of that redistribution going on. So I think I don't think it really overrules my views. But I, I, we should mention that this isn't some kind of you know the libertarians all reading each other's books. The, Pinker is by no means a libertarian, no. and no, a lot of what not. he says challenges libertarian views in some important ways. You know, this gets I, – I've got to air out what I think is the biggest problem in the book. Hit it. I, I was texting you guys vehemently about this at one point weeks ago. Um, the chapter on equal rights, starting on about page 224 in the hardback edition, he lays out emancipative values. And he, he goes he, – he very elaborately lays out that, look, emancipative values you can think of as liberty or libertarianism. It has nothing to do with the political left and right today in America. And, he, and he's wanting to show that over time, and he's showing it with an, an individual person as well as a 50-year-old today as a 50-year-old 50 years ago, that we all, across countries and, and in our own lives, it, it's showing that people value more freedom and more liberty over time. Okay. And he sets that up beautifully. Loving it. Okay. Then he's got a couple graphs that support it. And I'm like, great. But then he says things in the text of the book that I find very tough to take. He, it's almost as if he, he disregards his own setup and he, he goes on to say things like uh, two or three pages later, like, hey, and it's not like these conservatives are going to regress back into conservatism as, he start, as he's talking about our, our enjoyment of more rights and more liberties. And he clearly, he clearly does make the same mistake that he said he wouldn't make three pages earlier. And he starts to say, well, you know, it's not like these these nasty conservatives are regressing and carrying our society back and angry white men. He actually uses the term angry white men getting more angry about the freedoms that are growing as if to as if to say that people who might be more conservative on the political spectrum don't, for example, like the right to a small government, like the right to keep more of their paycheck, like the right to bear arms. I just I just I found that so troubling from a logic gap standpoint in that chapter that. Uh, to me, it was it was the worst part of the book. Yeah, I remember you texting about it at the time. It was that he kept changing the way he was using terms. Yeah, he he, he says he, first off he sets up emancipative values, and he does a great job of explaining it. But then he starts calling them liberal values. Now at the beginning he says, "Now I don't mean liberal like left and right. 
He says, I mean liberal, like liberty, freedom, libertarian. And I'm like, right. okay, I'm good with that. Yeah. But then later on, as you read what he writes, he writes things like, um, for all of the talk about right-wing backlashes and angry white men, the values of Western countries have been getting steadily more liberal, which we will see in the, in the reason, is the reason these white men are so angry. Well, he doesn't mean liberal in the left-right sense here. He means freedom. So he he makes it's it's almost like this wasn't edited properly. I just don't I, I just I, I got so frustrated reading this because his graphs are right, his setup is right, and then he regresses into like relapsing into basically saying, yeah, liberal is good, conservative is bad. Right. Yeah, I remember that being pretty sloppy. And actually, from your text uh, several weeks ago, oh, you found uh, it. <laughs> um, he refers to Muslims in the Middle East as the world's most conservative culture. Yeah, I, oh, but that's then not starts prejudicial. talking about American conservatives. And as Craig said, it's incredibly misleading when you think of what conservatism means in America at this point, conserving the right to bear arms, conserving land ownership, conserving the right to low taxes and limited government, et cetera. Yeah, uh, and a simple footnote would have cleared that up. If he had said, you know, by in America, the term conservative is a little odd because it means conserving liberal values from the Enlightenment and the Constitution of the Declaration of Independence against the the progressive movement or something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Here, it, here. Just, it, it really it really irked me. I mean, because because he was so sloppy with it on the on pages 225, 226, 227. What he did it right on page 224. And I'm like, yeah, Lord, I just Tim would have never made a mistake like that. In well, one of his I would books. never use the word conservative because not. Yeah, yeah, good point. You know, the, <laughs> good point. Well, just another quibble. It bothered me sometimes. He seemed kind of cavalier and. Uh, Harvard economisty, uh, ivory towery, uh, dismissing certain populist type political movements as just people being dumb, and obviously that's an unfair characterization. And of he, well, he does that to libertarians too. There's a passage where he says, you know, the libertarian fantasy, blah blah blah, and it, you know. And you know, hey, how I'm, about I'm so used to that, I hardly even notice it nowadays. Right. How yeah. about if you want to write a book covering the last 250 years and defending the Enlightenment and making a timeless piece of art that's going to sit on the shelf and we can look at forever? How about you don't go to the orange guy and use the T word? Yeah, I mean, to me, that's another just huge problem in the book. He just can't help himself. Well, and I, I just and getting back to the whole ivory tower, Harvard economist thing, <laughs> I just found him a little dismissive <laughs> at times, even as he made the point beautifully that positive change often causes momentary or, or overcomable negative results and that that's part of the process and it's OK. Um it seemed like he didn't recognize that that the common man sometimes has a pretty decent sense for those at the top of the ladder are getting really good at gaming the system. And they're claiming to me that this is good for me, but I can feel in my gut that I'm being used. I'm being jobbed. And I think popular outrage has been an incredibly well, not always, but often been an incredibly positive tool for holding the powerful to account when, you know, globalization is a much more complicated thing than people um, give it credit for. The idea that, well, yeah, globalization is unquestionably added to the total wealth and it's a much bigger pie to divide, et cetera, et cetera. But it's incredibly disruptive to entire parts of the planet, often for people's entire lives. And they're not wrong to resent it yeah, just right. because, globally speaking, yeah. standards of living have risen. Great and point. and God you know, dang it, this is getting complicated. Maybe it's time to reapproach your uh, mention about the welfare state, Tim, and, and understand that, well, OK, if we're going to have a society that's not riven by revolution, we ought to look out for the people who are being 
um, victimized in quotes by positive developments like, hey, we can get uh, uh, cars manufactured much more cheaply in North Korea. Uh, I don't know about that. That's a twist I didn't expect you to add. I, I, I've been hearing that for what five years now about how oh well we you know we haven't been uh, we haven't been feeling the pain enough of the. Uh, of the the Rust Belt working class, and we need to listen to them more. No, they need to buck it up more. That that's that it's it's as simple as that. Uh, well, they and need I, to be pandered to less. Yeah, well, that is <laughs> certainly true. But he, you know, one what you said earlier about how the the common people are a check against the intellectuals is a very important point, I think, because we were talking earlier about envy versus aspiration. The American people as a whole, I think, have still never really absorbed the envy that motivates the most of the intellectual class in this country and has motivated most of the intellectual class since about the time of the French Revolution. The, the common average ordinary American still believes in America as a land of opportunity through hard work and and that I can be the boss someday. And so that still is has a firm hold on the average American person, I think. And it, thank goodness for that. It, that has to never change. Unfortunately, they're being preached to and have been for generations by intellectuals who are very much of the envy school. I was thinking this on the way over to the the studio today. I was thinking about how, you know, it's often been said that Americans don't really, in their hearts of hearts, don't really believe in evil. They don't really comprehend evil and they don't actually believe that it exists fundamentally as an important, significant force in the universe. And that is true. I, I myself find... I have to remind myself sometimes that evil actually exists and is out there because it's so alien to my conception of the world. And I don't think that is true of other cultures in well, on Earth. It's well, really, that's it's, really interesting. It's really easy for it to be true for those of us born after 1970 in the United States, too, right? I mean, we have soft times, good times sure. creating soft Comparative, people. Sure. Yeah. We have no real evil to look at. Yeah, world. I would say when the militia comes through your village and slaughters everybody <laughs> except the young boys, which it grabs up to be child soldiers, you have a pretty easy idea of, yeah, uh, or you have a pretty yeah. easy time uh, picturing evil. Well, I hope we don't get a chance for that lesson anytime soon. Oh, no, we'll indeed. How about we read about it in books? Yeah, Continue to uh, live in ignorance of that. I did, you know, it made me feel like a bad person sometimes that some of these global statistics, I thought, yeah, I don't care. I should, I shouldn't care that the rest, <laughs> I shouldn't care that things are getting better for the rest of the world. It's only, it's only the numbers in my country and maybe even particularly in my orbit that I cared about. You're speaking to some of the suicide stuff. The fact that people are committing suicide less around the world, that's good. But if it's rising among my culture in my country, you know, I'm bothered by that. Maybe what, sh- what what Jack good is point. saying is that 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 graph twelve point eighteen availability of pie in the third world just did not do it. <laughs> well, just I, well, it'll I, be rancid by the time it gets here. I do in, I do intellectually speaking want the whole world to get better, but sure. but you know, emotionally politically, I only care about my own. So yeah. maybe that makes me a bad person. But no, I don't. That, that makes you the, the mayor of your town and, yeah. and somebody who works hard at it, which is absolutely as honorable an aspiration as being the uh, president of the U.N. or whatever the hell the grand poobahs call there at the U.N. Well, in, in that vein and in the in sort of the, the defense, like Tim had said earlier, in the, in the way he uses peculiar statistics to, to make points, I love, I love the statistic because it really hits upon the first world, the third world, and free trade policy where he says every cell phone added in the first world adds $3,000 of GDP to a developing country. I thought, well, that's just a beautiful statistic, isn't it? It helps the it third is, world and I'm far glad, more than us. 
I'm glad you mentioned the cell phone thing because, as you remember, several months ago now, Tucker Carlson did this rant on Fox that got a lot of publicity in the conservative world about how stupid capitalism is because all people do with it is buy iPhones that they don't need. And this <laughs> this section really is a beautiful refutation of that. I don't know if you saw a, a, some months ago there was circulating around on Twitter um, some guys in Africa used their iPhones to make a science fiction film with a, a, a green screen effects and everything that they made on a blanket hanging on a stick in their in an alley in their town. Oh, I they, missed that. I, did I mean, too. it's just what an incredible thing. I mean, you talk about something that cannot help but make you feel good about the world. That is incredible. And the Tucker Carlson's and the anti-capitalist reactionaries, whom Pinker refers to as conservatives, in, in this world, s- turn their noses up out of it, at it, either out of ignorance or or out of worse motives. When they just they just don't care, and they they regard material prosperity and that is to say human happiness as a trivial concern relative to some sort of romanticist vision of what human greatness really is. My favorite example of that sort of thing from the book was the discussion of I think it was it may have been Africa. It doesn't really matter. Fishermen who would use their smartphones after they had their catch to ping all the villages in the region to figure out what the fish prices were to avoid, as he describes, um, showing up to a village that's already glutted with fish and having all your time wasted and making no money when just down the coast there was a village that was like, where are the damn fishermen? Which is all of history has been that way. You, oh, could, have, right. you could have along a coast of people are starving here and they got fish rotting in the sun here. Right. There's, so, there's community for you. There's some community for you. Yeah, well, and beautiful example. the ability to become an informed uh, uh, participant in the free market and the, the the glut of information that you know may kill us and drive us all to suicide, but um, how, <laughs> there's upsides to it too. But how incredibly valuable uh, valuable it is. Hey, I want to throw in one thing apropos nothing, just because I thought it was so great. <laughs> and and if you know me or if you listen to the radio show at all, you know that the indoctrination of young people in schools and and universities makes me insane. Um, and I'd like to spend the rest of my life fighting it. Um. Just because it it presents such a perverse and upside down view of of history in the United States and and what makes for a successful culture, but I absolutely love this. Um, Pinker's talking about actually he's quoting uh, Max Roser, and I believe it's from the period of I don't want to get hung up on this. Oh, in nineteen seventy to twenty fifteen. If you're going to write a headline, and this comes from his, his talking about the human tendency toward negativity and finding small problems and bitching all the time, which is I suffer from it myself. Uh, but if he said, if you only published a newspaper once every 25 years or every 50 years, you'd have to write about the big stuff. It wouldn't be the momentary crap. It would be the big stories, the big progress. And he said, um, if you published a newspaper once describing 1970 to 2015, your headline would be number of people in extreme poverty fell by 137,000 since yesterday <laughs> every day for the last 25 years. That's a hell unbelievable. That's a hell of a stretch, man. That's 137,000 a day every day for 25 years. And it, the number of people in extreme poverty. And if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I, I believe they settled on using a dollar ninety per day in 2015 dollars. U.S. 2015 dollars is the standard they use for that. Uh, that that number is astounding to me. I don't know how. <laughs> I know they have a different lifestyle than I me. Mean, they must not have Netflix. Because <laughs> uh, I don't know how I would afford How that. are they going to afford the new Disney? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh-huh. You know, the, I've often said that the the great thing about knowing history is that it makes you feel better about your own time because you hear on the news some idiot saying something like, oh, America today is worst polarization ever and President Trump is the worst president of all time and all this sort of thing. And if worst, you know the worst about, economy for a young person graduated from a college to ever go out into. And I, if you I, know I like anything that one about, every year of my entire life. Oh. <laughs> you know, you have to just look back at the Civil War I mean, or, or, or 1968 and, you know, we have things so good and that's what i love about this book is stuff like that that really gets you to to stop and think no we we have things pretty darn good i was looking over my notes from the book that i wanted to touch on just i I just really like the phrase hedonic treadmill Uh, (laughs) the theory of the hedonic treadmill people adapt to changes in their fortunes like eyes adapting to light or darkness and quickly return to a genetically determined baseline of happiness so right. I know that yeah. about myself. I yeah, know that yeah. about myself. There was a yep. time yep. not Absolutely. long ago when I was perfectly happy in my little one room house that I had, you know, that uh, went right after I got out of law school. In fact, my friends called it the Unabomber Shack because it was just <laughs> <laughs> literally an uninsulated house in in Placerville, California. And now nowadays, I mean, I could go back to it if I really had to, I think. But nowadays, I get annoyed if my car makes a kind of a little bit of rattling noise because of the coins in the coin right. container. You know, right. so it does happen. By the way, Hedonic Treadmill would be a great name for your band to compete with Postmodern Jukebox. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I've actually, since I've been working out on the Hedonic Treadmill, I've lost 15 pounds. Um, <laughs> but you're no happier. You're no podcast. happier. Which no is... happier Hedonic <laughs> Treadmill. Right. My wife is happier, though. That's a treadmill that feeds you pie while you're on oh my god where do i buy it uh you know what's interesting though and one of the points he makes is um that that's fine and it's true but all those you know levels of happiness that you've passed upward you can't discount those and act them like and act like they didn't happen my babies didn't die i didn't die of a tooth infection at age 30 you know, I have medicine, I have education, so, I have... So you're saying my baseline happiness is the same, but I should recognize that. Uh, right, yeah, count your blessings. Yeah. You know, and, you but will. like you said, it's hard to get elected on that platform. No doubt. Right, right, absolutely true. Here's here's my favorite statistic. I loved the passage on uh, page 170. By the way, the pages are the same in the hardback and the paperback. And on pages Craig just likes to brag to that he could afford the hardback, because he's part of the 1%. <laughs> he bought it on it, God damn it. He bought it on Amazon because of our fabulous internet wealth-creating machine. Anyway, the passageway is talking about uh, the dangers of traffic, uh, traffic danger to pedestrians. He's talking about how dangerous it was to be a pedestrian in past ages. And he compares it to the dangers presented by horse-drawn travel. Oh, yeah. And I just, I, that's a, just a marvelous passage where he talks about the, the, how dangerous it was to, to be a, pe- a, a pedestrian years ago. There's a passage where he says here, uh, it takes more skill to cross Broadway. He's talking about, uh, he's quoting a guy from the 1900s. It takes more skill to cross Broadway than to cross the Atlantic in a, clam, uh, the Atlantic in a clam boat. The engine of city mayhem is the horse. Underfed and nervous, this vital brute was often flogged to exhaustion by pitiless drivers who exulted in pushing ahead with utmost fury, defying the law and delighting in destruction. Runways were common. The havoc killed thousands of people. According to the National Safety Council, the horse-associated fatality rate was 10 times the car-associated rate of modern times. Wow, that's incredible. And and he says this was written in 1974, which is more than double the per capita rate today. Finally, somebody mentioning the H-A-F-T. 
the horse associated fidelity rate. Oh, there's an R at the end. Sorry. <laughs> Nobody ever talks about that anymore. Damn horses. Yeah, I, a different book, but I remember this stat because it stood up to me that in uh, the late 1800s in Chicago, they averaged four deaths a day from fire. Yeah. Yeah. Which right. would you just, you know, that'd be the lead story in the news in any city when people, when that many people die in a fire now. Whereas today, fire is so rare that the San Francisco Poli- Fire Department now has fewer firemen on it than it did in 1906 when the earthquake occurred. And firemen are more often dispatched alongside the ambulance just in order to have something to do. Sure. Sure. Wow. Wow. So uh, we want to go on to final thoughts on Steven Pinker's enlightenment now, the case for reason, science, and humanism in progress. Um, alphabetical order by age, weight. Uh, well, that'd be uncomfortable. One, one last thing before we hit final free. thoughts. I, I love that he. I love that he threw back to our first book, um, uh, which was uh, help me out here. Oh, Heaven on Earth Moby by Dick. Heaven on Earth by <laughs> Joshua Murkovich, which uh, was about socialism. Which was about socialism. Right. Another fun fact from Pinker's book, page one hundred three. Um, Marx and Engels were wrong in their their communistic theory of primitive cultures. It turns out that. Sharing was not universal in communistic and primitive cultures. In hunting cultures, where a lot of your success was determined by luck, whether or not you came across animals, sharing was fairly common as as practiced. However, in the farming cultures, sharing was not common because they knew it would increase laziness and laziness and lethargy amongst right. the population. I thought that was great that he pointed that out. This is news to a Harvard professor in 2019. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I, I know. <laughs> Which is just astounding. I, just, it, I wanted to find astounding. the link to our first book. <laughs> um, so, I don't know. I, I'll kick it off because that, that leads beautifully to just my overall so impression. So going by head size. <laughs> <laughs> yes. From the pie, enormous pie, to the pin Pie consumption. We're going from pie consumption. <laughs> oh, great. Well, um, the need to defend... Things like the liberty and the free market um, and and the enlightenment, indeed, reason, scientific progress, the rest of it. it, it it's it's like, uh, you know what it's like? It's, exa- it's exactly like this. Maybe you're about to go to bed. Maybe you're a couple of cocktails in and and you drop a glass and you realize the next 40 minutes of my life are going to be spent cleaning up this mess. Or it reminds me when Onyx, my old dog, got sprayed by a skunk like 1030 at night. This this terrible feeling of this shouldn't be happening. I shouldn't have to do this. Why am I? Why is this weight been thrown upon me? It's it's idiotic and astounding and shocking and sickening to me that you have to now, especially to young people who are at universities that are supposed to be accomplishing the opposite. You have to defend the idea of reason to them. But it has to be done. And I just I think this book is a terrific tool, uh, uh, a primer, or do you say primer? And a read a chapter now, a chapter later. You don't have to plow through the whole thing. It was. I think it's a great set of tools to defend um, that which has elevated humanity from horror and starvation to affluence and health. So it's a would recommend from Joe. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I, can, I can dovetail on that and just say I, I would recommend this book too. I, I everything Joe said, I, I fully agree with. I think it's a I think it's a very useful set of facts and objective data to point to the fact that things are not getting worse; things are getting better, uh, demonstrably show. Now, I, I there are some parts with the book that we may quibble with. There's some parts that I think are fairly lean. 
But overall, I would definitely recommend this book. I would read this book. There's far more good than bad in this book. And I, I think it's I think it's it's worth consuming for even if you agree with the principles in here to be familiar with some of the facts, because you're going to be confronted with them as you deal with the the mainstream public uh, over the next few years. We see this, the, the, re, the refutation of facts, the idea that um, science is bad because it was all created by white men. I mean, we have to get back to oh, some basic truths wow. here. And we have to be able to point to something like this book. And I think I think it's really helpful that the author of this book is a, is an atheist liberal. Frankly, I mean, I you know I I wouldn't say libertarian. I would say he is a more liberal leaning human being, and and I, I think that's very helpful with a book like this. I'll let Tim go last since he chose the book, and I'll be short. Um, if nothing else, because the book stands out uh, for not being negative. I mean, we're just we're just awash in nonfiction books about how. Uh, awful things are. As uh, Jonah Goldberg said the other day, I don't know if there's ever been a time in U.S. history where every group felt aggrieved. Every single group feels like now is a bad time for them. And you can pick any color, any gender, any age, anything. And uh, to have a book out there to, to, to explain the overall arc of things right now is, uh, you know, we need that. Ladies and gentlemen, old Simple Jack, beautifully said. Oh, Tim Sandifer? I, I keep... I, I, my grandfather was a lumber delivery man and, uh, you know, grew up in poverty in uh, picking cotton in and pecans in West Texas. And when I think about the progress that occurred between his life and mine and the success that I've had in my life, it, it brings to mind that we are so fortunate. If you take seriously the idea that with great fortune comes a great responsibility – or if you take seriously the idea that we owe it to future generations to leave the world no worse off than we found it, then a book like this that makes you feel and really see how marvelously successful and happy we are today and how much we've accomplished, and even though there are still a long ways to go, it really, I think it reinforces the idea that we have an obligation to make the best of our lives that we possibly can on an individual basis and and as as a society to try and and say we, we have come so far it would really be a shame if we were to abandon it and walk away from it or denigrate the efforts of previous generations that got us this this far well i had to, i hate to add length to this thing but i think one of the biggest threats to enlightenment as we touched on might just be Comfort. Just what do human beings do when they don't have threat of war or starvation? What do we do? Do we just sit around <laughs> and die of obesity? I don't know. Here, don't here's know. my my suggestion: is the first thing that we should all do is reflect on how fortunate we are. And since it's Thanksgiving season, perhaps it's appropriate for us to say the first answer to that question is. Think about how lucky we are. Remember that that Dr. Seuss book, I, Did I Ever Tell You How Lucky You Are? Right. This is the grown-up version of that. So huh, take a one. moment for Thanksgiving to look at this book and, and consider how fortunate we as a society and as a, as a world have, are really are. Well, right, and it is an answer to the intersectional nonsense in that it is a global, truly global, as Jack indicated, every, every group and subgroup in the world can use this book as a uh, a gratitude exercise as you know you're suggesting tim and understand how far we've come gentlemen uh, tim and i have each selected a book do either of you have our next book ready to go yet i'm gonna nominate jack you jack you're into the book learning 
You got a book you want to uh, suggest? Moby Dick. You know, no, you I, know, I don't actually. We should do Moby Dick just because you keep saying that, and because I love that book so <laughs> know, much, I've it read is, it three times already. It, it is. Did it you is read so the whole fantastic. thing? Oh my god! All the way through, oh, I absolutely love that. Surely, Life's when, too short. surely when you reread it, though, you skip all the whale nonsense. No. Oh, all. are you kidding me? Uh, all the, the particulars of the whales. The, the chapter, the whiteness of the whale, is one of the best of the whole book. Oh, all right. About um, why the about why the color white is so terrifying? Oh man, my, marvelous! I'm not kidding. Are this we is back to intersectionality here? Is this a college <laughs> social class? I would Does love that to be the next book. We'll we'll, we'll come up with a book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll come tweet up it, with tweet it. Tweet at Jack and Joe if you have right. suggestions for us. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty decent idea. Yeah, All right. tweet at us. All right, thanks, fellas. Well done. Extra large. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.